This episode is sponsored by Susie Orman Schnall's novel, We Came Here to Shine, which is available now, and the link is in the show notes. Fans of Fiona Davis and Beatrice Williams will love We Came Here to Shine, uplifting historical fiction set at the 1939 New York World's Fair. Schnall takes readers behind the scenes of the fascinating World's Fair as they follow the journeys of two bold and ambitious women, a glamorous aquacade swimmer and a plucky journalist. Newly optioned for film, We Came Here to Shine was named a top read by outlets including Parade, Travel and Leisure, and Good Morning America. Susie was my first podcast interview, and you can learn more about the book by listening to that episode. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, where I interview authors about their latest works. My name is Cindy Burnett, and I love to talk about books. If you have any comments or feedback for me, feel free to contact me through my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. And if you enjoy these podcast episodes, you should check out the Literary Salon tab on my website and sign up for our newsletter. We are hosting some fabulous online author events in 2021. Today, I am interviewing Molly Greeley. Molly was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where her addiction to books was spurred by her parents' floor-to-ceiling bookshelves. A graduate of Michigan State University, she began as an education major, but switched to English and creative writing after deciding that gainful employment was not as important to her as being able to spend several years reading books and writing stories and calling it work. She lives in northern Michigan with her husband and three children. Welcome, Molly. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm a huge Jane Austen fan, so I'm really looking forward to talking about The Heiress. I'm looking forward to it as well. Well, why don't we start out with you talking a little bit about the story? Well, so The Heiress, for anyone who has read Pride and Prejudice, it is kind of the untold story of Anne de Bourgh, who is Mr. Darcy's kind of sickly, not super polite cousin, but we don't know very much about her in Pride and Prejudice. And in The Heiress, I basically just tried to give her her own life and explain kind of why she is the way that she is. How did you decide to write about her? She's one of those minor characters that always kind of interested me, mostly because we know so little about her. And she's basically dismissed by everybody in the book, except for her own mother. And I have a tendency to like to delve into people's inner lives and characters in her lives. And I always had this sense that people assume that Anderberg has no inner life. And I kind of wanted to explore that idea that she is, characters are, are you know, supposed to be people, basically. And so all people have more going on than it looks like on the surface. And also, when I was doing research for my first book, The Clergyman's Wife, I happened to stumble upon this kind of historical nugget of information that triggered me to think more about Anne de Berg. It was about laudanum, which is a tincture of opium that was like really, really widely used back then. And it was even given to babies. And when I found that and saw what the side effects of laudanum use can be, they really, really reminded me of the way that Anne de Berg behaves in Pride and Prejudice, just kind of lethargic, not really paying attention to anything, too weak to even rise to even say goodbye to people most of the time. So that kind of got me thinking that maybe that was an explanation for her sickliness. Well, and you're talking about her being dismissed by everybody. I almost feel like she's also dismissed by her mother. I mean, her mother obviously is promoting her interests, but she doesn't ever really speak to her. It's almost like she's just this person who sits there silently by herself with the nurse sometimes with her. Well, that yeah, you're absolutely right. I think you hit it right on the head because yeah, Lady Catherine definitely promotes Anne's interests or what she thinks Anne's interests should be. Because she does dismiss Anne in that 
she basically makes excuses for her constantly. She's too sick to do this. She's too sick to go out. She can't dance. She can't do anything. And in that sense, yeah, that's basically saying my child is not capable. So that is definitely its own form of dismissal. Yes, because even as an adult, she doesn't say to Anne, do you want to do this or how's it going or whatever they would say in that time frame. She just kind of talks over her. Yeah, and Anne never actually speaks in the book, like not even once. So yeah, it's all that we know about her comes through other people's perceptions of her. Which would make her an interesting character develop into her own story, which is obviously what you did, but because you have so much to work with other than just the picture painted of her with her not saying a single thing, it gives you a lot of leeway. Exactly. Yeah, it was pretty, it was a pretty interesting thing. It, It felt in some ways more like, I don't know, finding like an historical figure who you only know these like bare facts about because you don't actually hear her voice. You don't hear her thoughts ever. Rather than taking someone's character and redeveloping it, it it almost felt more like finding some person from history and trying to figure out who they might have been. Well, and I like that better anyway, because I do absolutely love Jane Austen and Persuasion and Pride and Prejudice are my two favorites. But I don't really love those stories that continue like Lizzie's story with Mr. Darcy and some of those, because I kind of like the story just left like it was. So, but this is perfect because you're just taking a character who hardly anything is known about and creating a story for her. Right. I don't have anything wrong with, you know, people who, who continue Elizabeth's story, but we already know so much about her. And so I think it's interesting to explore those young characters we know little about. Well, how does this story fit into the timeline of Pride and Prejudice? So it actually follows Anne from the time she is born throughout her entire life. And so she is a few years younger than Mr. Darcy. So there are moments in the story where we can, where we see them together as children, we see them together as young adults. And then we see when Elizabeth Bennet comes to visit her friend, Charlotte Lucas. They're kind of intertwined. It follows Anne the entire time that she's alive, basically. But most of it is her own story. So very, there are only a few instances where we actually see Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth in the story. A few touch points that I guess translate from Pride and Prejudice. Well, the BBC version of Pride and Prejudice is my favorite version of that story told on screen. And I've seen it probably... I'm not exaggerating 15 times. And so I have a daughter who's a senior in high school and she is studying, her English class this fall is Gothic literature. And so she just read Northanger Abbey and was asking me about some of the other ones. And I said, well, let's watch Pride and Prejudice. So we just did. And knowing your interview was coming up and taking Anne DeBerg's story, it was really interesting to watch Anne. And because that's one of my favorite scenes is when Lizzie is there with Charlotte visiting Catherine de Bourgh and Mr. Collins is simpering. And so it was interesting to think about Anne more as I was watching that portion of the movie, or I call it a movie. My daughter keeps saying it's a mini series. So yeah, I love that one too. Yes. And that scene is so well done. It is so well done. And then the, uh, the other scene, I guess it's maybe the only other scene Anne is in when they show up at Longbourn. Yes. And she just looks so miserable sitting in the carriage. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You feel you feel for her, her embarrassment and sort of the, her whole predicament. Mm-hmm. Yes, exactly. Can you tell me more about your research? I did quite a lot of research. I found that like I said, that little bit of information about laudanum, but I was in the middle of finishing my first book at that point. So it was one of those things I kind of put kept in the back of my head. So I, when I decided to write the Anne story, I started deep diving into laudanum use at the time. It was so widely used that there were these newspaper articles that you can find where they talked about children dying of overdose. They talked about, and other people as well. And some of which was accidental, some of which was on purpose. And there were cartoons that lampooned these formulas that were patented and marketed to 
parents to give to their children. And so people people were aware that this was a problem, but it just, I don't even understand it completely. I guess it's kind of like the opiate crisis today. We all know that it's a problem, but it's still going on. So I found that kind of thing. And I also had to research a lot of things about Regency era London, which I had seen in movies, but I'd never written about it before. So it was kind of interesting to find out. There are a lot of fun rabbit holes to go down discovering what you know, that place was like back then. And I also did do some research into what it was like to be uh, an LGBTQ person in this time period, because the novel does touch on that. And there were vast differences between being a gay man and a gay woman back then, as far as how you were treated. So that was fascinating and horrifying to find out. Oh, that's interesting that there was a difference based on gender for that. that that's curious. Well, it was very male-centric. Misogyny at that point is obviously very prevalent, but it almost worked in women's favor if they happened to be lesbians because men were still hanged even sometimes, not always, but often enough that it was pretty awful for having what was called... um, Unnatural relations or something like that? Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you. That's exactly it. It was unnatural relations with each other. And women weren't. Men had prison time for these offenses. Men were pilloried. And women, for the most part, kind of got away with it. They found one court case where these two women who were both teachers at a boarding school, a case was brought against them because it was thought that they had corrupted their students. And it was dismissed by one of the judges in the case because he said, well, this is like saying fairies or witches exist, like two women can't be together. That is fascinating. And I love the Regency era. I mean, that's just one of my favorite time periods to read about. So many interesting things happened and the fashion, just all of it. I think it's a fascinating time period. I do too, very much. Well, what do you hope your readers take away from this book? Honestly, kind of like what I was talking about before, I hope that it is a book that makes people think about, I don't know, the inner lives of characters and the fact that every person, not just in books, but every person has a story and has a lot going on, whether we're aware of it or not. So just that let's not so easily dismiss people or characters or that sort of thing. Well, I think that's a valid point, especially today when the focus is more on that. So it's just kind of a good reminder for people. So I have to know, I'm assuming you're a Jane Austen fan. So tell me a little bit about which book is your favorite and just kind of that whole thing. So actually, Persuasion is definitely my favorite. I do love Pride and Prejudice. I love Northanger Abbey for how hilarious it is. But there's just something about the slightly different feel to it that I really, really am drawn to. It's a little bit more reflective, I feel like. And although it still has the trademark Austin happy ending, which works perfectly, I just, I really love that book. I do too. And again, I love the movie. <laughs> I mean, I'm not even sure there's probably more than one movie, but the one that I always think of is kind of the main, I think it's a BBC one also. But yeah, that is just such a fabulous story. It really is. Yeah. Do you have a least favorite of hers? Probably Mansfield Park. That's one where the characters, I just never have felt as connected to them, I guess, as I have to some of her other ones. Although it's not that I don't feel for Fanny's predicaments, but there's just something about it that I've never quite loved as much as the other books. I get that. Mine is Sense and Sensibility. I know people love that story, and I just don't even like it. (laughs) Really? What is it about? I have to ask. (laughs) I know, and I don't even know. I mean, I've read it. I've seen the movies, and I just it just doesn't appeal to me. And so I just don't even watch it anymore and read it anymore because I do reread most of them periodically. And I love Emma, too. I think it's an interesting story, especially as you get older. As I get older and I realize that some of it's a maturity issue for her, I really like that story. Yes, I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. 
Well, how did you come up with the title for this one? I am actually very bad at coming up with titles. This was one where I had a bunch of really clunky, kind of overcomplicated titles. And my editor was like, nope, that's a terrible idea. And she and my agent and I kept going back and forth. And finally, my editor just came up with, well, what about the heiress? Which I think is simple. And it's such a perfect counterpoint to the clergyman's wife. It was one of those things where everything just clicked. Well, and then you add the kind of tagline, the revelations of Anne de Berg, which I think kind of then at least gives people an idea of what the story's about before they even have to pick it up. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that was also my editor's doing. I like that. And then that cover, I just think it's awesome. How did that happen? That, I mean, that was entirely my publisher. That was entirely William Morrow. We hadn't even talked concepts really or anything like that. It was more just that I opened my email one day and my editor had sent it to me and she's like, what do you think of this? And I had no reservations. I just, it was so perfect. With The Clergyman's Wife, it was a lovely cover as well, but I did, and my agent did have a couple of tweaks that we requested. This one just was perfect as is. Well, I love it. And I do think it is perfect. I think William Morrow does a really, really good job with their covers. They do. Yeah, I definitely agree. Well, what's the best thing about being a writer? For me, and probably I'm assuming for a lot of other writers, I know some that I've talked to feel this way, you write kind of because you have to. It can be self-therapy. It can be a way of making sense of the world. I mean, I think for me, writing lets me explore the world from other perspectives and it encourages my curiosity in the world. And it's the best way that I have of expressing my thoughts and my feelings. Like if I have something going on in my life that I'm trying to work through, writing it out and figuring that out is just... I don't know how people figure things out if they don't if they don't have that. Well, I do think that people deal with those types of things differently, but it seems like a lot of people are either talk it out with a friend or a spouse or someone or write it out. And I think that's interesting to see, you know, sometimes which way people fall. Yeah, definitely. Well, are you working on anything at the present that you would like to share with me? Well, so this year has been, yes, I am. I'm working on a it's not Jane Austen anymore, but it is historical fiction. It's a fairy tale retelling from an historical perspective. But because 2020 has been very challenging, just like it has been for everybody, I am definitely not as far along as I hoped I would be at this time. But checking along and we'll see how it goes. I definitely think for 2020, it's been very up and down for me. There are times when I'm able to completely focus on my work and what I'm doing. And there are other times that I just have a very hard time being present in whatever it is. Yes, I completely relate to that. And my kids are off of school, so they're home all the time. And it's just, it's challenging, but just like everyone else, we just do what we have to do. So So are they online or are they just out, out? We ended up taking them out, out and and homeschooling just because we knew that especially one of our kids would not do terribly well going back and forth a lot, which we suspected would happen. And it has in our school district, they keep closing and reopening. And we tried online and it just didn't work. My youngest is in kindergarten and he could not focus sitting in front of a computer screen. He just couldn't do it. So we decided a friend who, you know, she and her kids are kind of in our bubble. We were doing it together, the homeschooling. Well, where are you that they're going in and out of school like that? We're in Northern Michigan. And I think here, if I'm understanding correctly, it's there have been cases, but it's more just that the teachers have to quarantine every single time they're exposed. And so they're running out of staff members. So that's why they keep closing. Oh, that's terrible. That would be so disruptive. I can totally understand where it would make sense to just create a much more stable environment because it's a stressful enough time for kids right now. 
Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I have to say everything I've heard about what the teachers are doing and how online is going has been terrific. It's just we all have to make those calls when we can. Oh, absolutely. My kids are a little older. So I have a sophomore in college and then I have two in high school and they're at a private school. So they were online for four weeks and then they did this kind of hybrid one week when half the group went the next week, the other did, and you'd be online when you weren't in person and now they're in person. They have not had to go back online since they opened in October, but I'm hoping they don't, you know, as it keeps talking about the cases and everything continuing to get worse. It's not been bad here. Houston's numbers have actually stayed stable and it's been fine, but I just, they really don't like online. It's just so much harder to participate and pay attention. And so I, I hope that they're able to stay there. Oh, I hope so. Yeah. But yes, it's definitely outside the teacher's control. It's just such a bummer when you're having to open and close and open and close. I'm sure that's very disruptive. Yeah, exactly. And I think homeschooling was definitely very challenging in the beginning. I think we've started to hit our stride. I don't know that I would be able to do it if my kids were not so young, because I probably wouldn't understand everything that they're supposed to be learning. But right now, it seems to be working pretty well. Well, I I could not homeschool, especially not high schoolers. But I mean, I'd just be terrible at it. But I always laugh because I interviewed Pamela Redman for her book, Older, a couple of months ago. And so she has the funniest line in the book about this, because it takes place in LA, about this woman who says, and you know, now I'm having to homeschool my four children and it's so much work. I've had to hire 10 teachers. And I'm like, that would be me. I would have to hire teachers as I homeschooled, as she called it. So I was laughing. I was like, okay, that's the perfect description (laughs) of of the way my homeschooling would have to work. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Well, before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. There are a couple of books that I read just in the last month or so that I really, really loved. And both of them were historical fiction. One of them was Conjure Women and the other was The Mercies. And I think, you know, both of them have gotten a lot of attention, but I had only just come across them. And In some ways, they kind of, I feel like, deal with the same themes, but they're also very unique in their own way and both deal a lot with women in these various time periods. And both of them also deal with witchcraft and and both have the most beautiful writing. I couldn't recommend them highly enough. I love the cover for The Mercies. Um, It keeps catching my eye. I haven't read it yet, but every time I'm seeing lists now as we're toward the end of the year, and I just every time I see that cover, I'm like, oh, it's just stunning. Yes, it really, really is. Well, good. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Molly. I really appreciate your time. I really enjoyed talking with you about The Heiress. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram and Pinterest at Thoughts From a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. Molly's book can be purchased at Murder by the Book, where I work part-time, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Susie Orman-Schnall for sponsoring this episode, and thanks to KP Regan for the sound editing. And I hope you will tune in for the next episodes. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. 
tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.